0: So good to be with you all this morning as we are continuing on in our uh, study of Revelation. Uh, we have just completed the discourses to the churches. So to the seven churches, if you uh, just to remind everybody of where we're at, uh, John is is having this vision, and Christ is speaking. Uh, to John through the angel and giving him these discourses to write down these sort of miniature snippets or miniature letters uh, to each one of these churches. Now note that all the churches are going to see all of this. All the Christians are going to see all of this. So it's not just like Philadelphia is going to see their section and Ephesus is going to see their section. They're all going to see all parts of this And we saw that in some cases there were some some, uh, commendations, some encouragement. In some, there was some condemnation. In others, there was just celebration and encouragement to continue to persevere. And as we talk through, uh, as we speak about Revelation, as we speak about those seven churches, we know that there are different ways to interpret those passages We know that in some cases that some people take those passages in those different churches to be examples of different ages of the church throughout time, uh, which means that right now we are in the age of Laodicea. So that is one way of viewing that. I don't believe that that's overly helpful. Um, I don't believe that's overly helpful, and I don't believe that's what we witness and see both in Scripture and throughout our own experience is that in in many cases we see elements of all these churches in in many churches that we come to witness today. And so I think the best thing to the way to look at those passages is to see Christ via John encouraging these specific churches to continue to persevere, continue on working and and serving in the way that they have been commended, and then then correct and repent in those ways that they are falling short. And so the way we look at those seven churches is that we take every one of those in stride. Where do we see ourselves in those churches as we self-evaluate? And by the way, let me just say, it is important for us to self-evaluate. As a church and as individuals, we need to regularly sit down in prayer while reading scripture and say, Lord, where are we falling short? Where am I falling short? Lord, have I forgotten my first love? And Lord, if I've not forg- forgotten my first love, can you help me? Can you encourage me? Can you provoke me? to love you even more, to stir my, um, stir my affections even more. I've heard it said in, in culture, especially when there's in, uh, out in the world and in life, just when people are trying to encourage them to follow Christ and to read Scripture and to pray and to come to church and those types of activities that the individual will generically say, well, I've, I've got a lot of my Jesus this week. You know, I got my, they come to church on Sunday mornings and say, I got my Jesus this week. Folks, an hour or an hour and a half on a Sunday morning doesn't get you enough Jesus. You can never have enough Jesus in your life. You just can't. We should always be longing for more. Always be longing for more. Always be longing for the Holy Spirit to stir our affections to to move us to to greater uh, to to greater worship and to greater fellowship and to repentance if necessary i heard I saw a quote this morning on social media as I was kind of going through uh, just on my phone and one of the quotes was that when you see that someone says that they're not really into worship any, any uh, right now or not into worship anymore, uh, that they've kind of gotten bored by it or kind of tired of it. The truth is they probably were never into worship. They were just kind of following the flow. We want our hearts stirred for Christ. And that's where we land today in chapter 4. I love this passage. I think it is safe for me to say That this uh, ranks up there with one of my favorite sections, not only to read and to ponder, but also uh, to teach and uh, and now to preach. And so I'm really excited about today. And so we're going to do things a little bit different. We're not going to have slides uh, today. We're going to walk right through this passage. And what my hopes are, what my hope is, is that as we read this, that our affections will be stirred for Christ and that we will see Him as He truly is um, and that it will provoke us to greater worship. So I want to read this passage in full. And then what I want to do is I want to break it down. I'm going to explain some of it, although most of it is self-explainable. It's not very difficult to understand. There's a few uh, few things in there that might be a little bit tricky, but I think that will be all right. So would you join me? I'm going to read this, and if you would uh, follow along silently, that would be fantastic. John writes, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go through the whole chapter today. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, "'Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this.'" And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head." The first living creature like a lion, a second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Can we just pause right there and say that together? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. and we're created. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an, am- what an amazing passage and depiction of your heavenly throne. The-, the picture of you resting, of you sitting on your throne, surrounded by these elders, surrounded by these creatures, surrounded by these wonderful and glorious gemstones... And the rainbow, this, the purity of that crystal-like, mirror, mirror-esque, sea-like, uh, sea in front, Lord. And this idea that these creatures are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What an amazing picture we have. That has been attested to throughout all of Scripture. Father, this morning I, I pray that as we read this text. That we are moved to worship. That we are moved to repent. Of any apathy or complacency in our life. That we might truly experience and understand the majesty of Of our God. There is none like you. Father, I pray this morning that you would captivate us. Father, this morning I pray that Christ would be lifted high. I pray, Lord, this morning. That you would be crowned with many crowns. I pray that you would be exalted. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We regularly attempt, either subconsciously, inadvertently, or on purpose, to set up our own thrones, to rise to the point where we are on a pillar all by ourselves. The world does it, our culture does it. It is so common. Let me be very clear about something. No matter how impressive we think we are, no matter how impressive we think someone else is, no matter what we do, no matter what we say, we do not impress our God. How do you impress a God depicted as this? Look, Lord, at all my works. Look at everything I've done. Look at what I've built. Do we expect to impress our God with our stuff? We don't. I saw a quote this morning. I should have shared it. Hopefully I will by the end of this day, but it's by Jared Wilson. And I'm going to mess it up, but I'm going to paraphrase it. But He says, basically this, we should never wake up in the morning and try to figure out how we can impress God today. How do you? Especially after reading this. It says, after this, I looked and behold, this is John speaking in the first person, and behold, a door standing open In heaven, Folks, I want you to catch that. It's not a door that is closed. It is not a door that is locked. It is a door that is open. It is open and it is welcoming. When I see a door that is already open, that's an invitation for me to walk in. It's an invitation for me to walk in. And this door is open to John here. And it says, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said... Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So what we have is we have Christ speaking and his voice is like a trumpet. So I I don't know if when I hear Christ's voice audibly one day, whether I will just fall to my knees and begin weeping, or if I will cower in fear just because, not not this like fear that he's going to just absolutely smite me because I will be with Christ, but this idea that it's just the Lord of heaven speaking as if a trumpet. I mean, it's just this amazing thing. And he speaks to him and he says, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place. Christ is getting ready. Remember, this is the revelation of, of jesus christ so he is revealing to john and revealing to the churches what is soon to take place something that is going to take place post what john is writing here now i want you to know that john is not physically rising up to heaven okay this is a vision and it's going to say here in a minute that he's in the spirit okay he's in the spirit so Jesus is going to show him what soon must take place. And notice this, it doesn't say that might take place, it, not that it should take place, it's that it must take place. What we're getting ready to see for the remaining 18 chapters, every bit of this has to happen. It must take place, there is no question And we're going to see what that is. We're not just going to see it in chapter 4. We're going to see it throughout the next several chapters. But there's going to be a hint of it here in chapter 4. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, this throne is in heaven. This is not an earthly throne. This is not a throne made for men. This is a throne for our God. And it is in heaven. And so he was in the spirit. He was taken up. This is a vision. Uh, this he's he's not, he doesn't have some sort of medical psychosis or something like that. He's having a spiritual experience where God is blessing him with a vision. I, I want to just tell you all that we should be very careful. In reading this and then trying to take from this and put it into our own life, that we should expect God to give us visions such as this. This is a very unique experience made for an apostle, for one who is going to write down the revelation of John. So please don't go home after this and start looking for visions such as this. There is a reason why we don't need those visions, it's because John has already experienced this. And He has told us what we are going to see, what He has seen and what we are going to see. It's enough. It's like when people say, Lord, give me a sign. Give me an indication. Share with me, Lord, what I need. You have all that you need to know right here. He has given it to us. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Let's stop right there. What is this Jasper and Carnelian? This is taken right out of the Old Testament. What John is seeing, he understands to be a very similar thing that the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others have seen. And so uh, imagine that somebody has told you, like given you directions someplace, right? They've given you directions to go somewhere, and you're going, and they've given you some really obscure thing. And they've said, you're going to turn right at this big rock. It's this big rock, it's kind of reddish brown, and it's got a funny shape. It's kind of shaped like a, like, like, like a piece of broccoli, Okay, And you're like, what? That's crazy. I can't even imagine that, right? And then all of a sudden, you see it, right? And you're like, oh, I get it. I would have never guessed that, but I get what he was seeing. Just imagine that, that John knows the book of Ezekiel. He knows Isaiah very well, but you know he's read what they have experienced, but he's not experienced it for himself and then all of a sudden God has blessed him with this vision and now he's seeing the throne and he's dressed in jasmine and jasper and car and carnelian and he's like i get it now i get what isaiah was saying i get what ezekiel was saying folks that is going to be our experience when we come in pre, into the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for all eternity, we are going to look upon them and say, I get it now. I get what they were saying. It gives me goosebumps. I get it now. Folks, it will be a sight to behold. You take the most amazing, immaculate thing you have ever experienced in your life and being in the presence of God will not there's, there's just no comparison I love that passage that Brittany read at the beginning when Isaiah says I was undone I was undone more of us need to be undone We do not have to wait to come into the presence, the physical presence of Christ, to be undone by his majesty and his glory. If more people were undone by the glory of God and the majesty of God, we would not be experiencing the apathy in our churches. We would not be experiencing the loss of truth in our churches. We would not have professing Christians saying, at a, at a statistic of 60-some percent, saying that they don't believe in the Holy Spirit, that He's just a metaphor. We would have people on their knees in worship, trusting and believing and proclaiming truth. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance appearance of emerald. Now what this is, we're not 100% sure what this means, but we do know what a rainbow means, isn't it? A rainbow in Genesis implies here's my promise to you. Whenever you see my bow in the sky, remember my promise. This emerald rainbow. I'll tell you what I take it as. I take it as this majesty, this monarchy of God, this godly monarchy, but also the idea that his promises were kept. His promises were kept, and his promises that he's getting ready to to make will be kept. God does not lie. What you are getting ready to hear is the truth. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these twenty-four elders? We're going to read a little bit more about them here in a little bit, and we're going to see them a few uh, further on. And and there's a lot of skept, uh, not skepticism, but a lot of um, a, a lot of grappling with this passage trying to figure out who are these 24 elders I mean really there's there's not much talk about uh, 24 elders in Scripture. This seems like a, a special thing. Some people believe that it's well it represents you know it represents the, the 12 tribes uh, plus the 12 disciples equaling 24. Uh, it may represent uh, this kind of Levitical order that seemed to have a number 24 associated with it. but folks I think that we're being way too complicated here. Here's what, how I take this, these 24 elders. They are symbolic of the church. Read this. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their head. What does it say about Christians? It's that the bride of Christ will be clothed in white. That we will be clothed in white, representing the purity that comes with being washed clean of our sin. And that we too will rule along with Christ. We read that a few days, a few weeks ago. That we will be given the privilege to rule along with Christ. That does not mean that we are at his level. That does not mean that we are equal with Christ. But what that means, as Christ is our Savior, he has given us the privilege of ruling along with him, that we will be given crowns. These 24 elders represent the church, they represent the church. And it says that they are, notice where their placement is. They are not in front of, they are around this heavenly front. They're around God. They are in proximity of God. They are not separated. They're not separated by a wall. They're not separated by this, by this uh, structure that contains the Holy of Holies. So this past week, uh, this past week was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement which throughout uh, through Jew- Jewish history would have, been, uh, would have separ- celebrated this Day of Atonement, this one day where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies right, and make sacrifice. And so they were celebrating that. And the, the night before, so that was Wednesday, the night before around 8 or 9 o'clock on Tuesday, they will begin fasting and they will fast all the way until the next night. And it's this celebration of Yom Kippur. And in the Old Testament, we see that the people were separated by this holy of holies where they would go in. Folks, there is no separation now. That veil has been torn. We have access to the Father through Christ. The door to heaven is open. It's not locked. You don't have to have special permission when you come by way of the blood of Christ. We are welcomed in. In verse 5 it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The first thing is, there's thunder and there is lightning. There's all of this commotion. It's erratic. It's probably terrifying. Which gives us an idea of what we're getting ready to see. What must soon take place? And it's judgment. In Scripture, when we see lightning and thunder, when we see that kind, of, that kind of chaos, it is a depiction and a foreshadowing of judgment that is to come. And that's what we're going to see. That God must now judge the nations. But then along with that thunder and that lightning, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, which represents the perfect Holy Spirit. So what do we have here? We have the perfect Trinity. We have Christ saying, come up here in His voice like a trumpet. We have God the Father sitting on a throne, and we have the perfect Holy Spirit surrounding. They are all right there. John is in their presence. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. It's pure. It's clean. It's without imperfection. It represents the holiness of God. It represents the purity of God. It represents the majesty of God. John is experiencing the fullness of the glory of God in this vision. In all that it encompasses. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. You have these four creatures. Now, there is some speculation that these are, are, are literal creatures that are surrounding the throne And that they're sort of angels. So we had a study on angels a few few months ago, and we talked about different classes of angels and those sorts of things. And and we talked about these, these creatures that they're not really angels as we know them, but they're like angels, meaning that they are part of the host of heaven, that they are created beings. These are not divine creatures, but they are special creatures. And so there's some there's some idea, and I take it to be that these are actual creatures that God has created for a particular purpose. And they represent the entire created order. See what it says here. They have faces like lion, like an ox, like the face of a man. Like a living creature, like an eagle in flight. So it's this majestic, the birds of the sky. You have man, the pinnacle of creation. You have a lion, the king of the beasts. And you have this ox, which would have been the king of these domestic animals. I mean, he's covering all of his bases with these creatures. But catch this, that they have these eyes surrounding them. Now, I read a commentary this morning that said that these creatures have all these eyes, that they can see everything, and they help to protect God. And I immediately went, what? God does not need the protection of anybody. Anybody. So I think that was a little slip up in the commentary, okay? Here's what I take those eyes to mean. It means that they can see. it's a representation of that they that they see everything. It's the sovereignty of God seeing everything. You cannot get around God. You cannot play you cannot pull one on God. I'm just going to slide in here, and I'm going to do this right here. God probably. God is too busy dealing with all these other people in the world. He's not going to mess with me, folks. He see. There is nothing that remains in the dark. Everything will be brought out into the open. If not now, then when you come into the presence of Christ, everything is seen. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And so these these things are powerful, right? They have these, um, these, these amazing structures on them. They can probably do amazing things. But why were they created? For this one purpose. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and who was and is and is to come. Why were they created? Were they created to do some sort of work? Were they created to, to lead some sort of army? Were they created to, to, uh, to represent some massive group of individuals? No, they were created to worship. That is the only thing they were... Day and night, they never cease to proclaim Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They are constantly doing this and praising and worshiping. And folks, they are not getting bored. I hear people saying, well, if all we're going to do in heaven is worship God, that's going to get kind of boring. Folks, it is not boring to worship God. If you are bored worshiping God, then you are not worshiping. You are not experiencing the majesty of God. You might be bored by the music. You might be bored by the preaching. But we never get bored of worshiping God. These creatures represent the created order. And they never cease to proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I think that is symbolic of the fact that we too are part of that created order and we are called to worship God in all of His splendor. The splendor of the King clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. It's a beautiful depiction of this act of worship that we are called to. And, folks, this is not something that is going to happen. This is something something that is already happening. The angels and the creatures, the hosts of heaven, are not waiting for the second coming to worship God. The same hosts of heaven that were worshiping God at the moment of Christ's birth are the same hosts of heaven that are worshiping Him right now. Even the rocks will cry out if we fail to. God will get his worship. He will. He will get his glory. He will be exalted. The question is whether he will receive it from you or not. And one day he will receive it from you whether you like it or not. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I find it funny, all these individuals. I don't believe in God. I don't worship God. Worship is for suckers. They're for people who are delusional. They're delusional. Well, one day, those individuals will participate in that delusion. Only it won't be a delusion. They will experience what many of us in here are already experiencing. In verse nine, it says, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. I mean, it's just the reminder that whenever they are leading in worship here, and that's what they're doing. They're leading worship here forever and ever. This, this one seated on the throne, it says, the 24 elders fall down before him, Who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before him. This is a representation of the bride of Christ, dressed in white, crowned in splendor, because of Christ, not of their own doing. And when those four creatures lead them in worship, what do they do? They get on their knees, take that crown off because they did not earn it, and they cast those crowns to the one who gave it to them in the first place. Some of you all know the the contemporary Christian group Casting Crowns. Well, their name actually comes from a Chris Tomlin song that I love to sing in here, We Fall Down, where it talks about casting crowns. And so casting crowns got their name from a Chris Tomlin song, but Chris Tomlin got his song from Revelation. So vicariously, their name is very biblical. We are very reticent in our own lives as fallen, broken creatures to cast our crowns to anybody. Pride and the need for power and supremacy in life prevents us from bowing down to anyone. To anyone. And here's what I would say. I would say that that is somewhat appropriate. Appropriate. We do not bend a knee to any created being. We do not bend a knee to anything of this earth. We do not cast our crowns to anyone except the one who created all things. Remember in Scripture, as individuals experienced like creatures like angels oftentimes they would bow down to worship and then they would quickly say, no, 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 you don't worship me. I mean, these are angels. You don't worship me. You worship God alone. If those angels had allowed those individuals to continue to worship, if they would have exalted in themselves being worshiped by these humans, they would have suffered the same fate As Satan, they would have been cast down because no one is to be worshiped or exalted as God except for God. My wife and I were, uh, we got the privilege of going to a 9 11 ceremony and um, a memorial service, and Crystal was asked to sing the national anthem, which, if any of you all have ever done that, It's a little nerve-wracking to do that. I've done it a couple times, and she used to do it all the time when she was in college. And um, so, it's a little nerve-wracking because that's a song you don't want to mess up, right? You don't want to be substituting words in that song. And it was a really nice ceremony. You had the Boy Scouts over here uh, burning some of the flags that have been torn up or that had fallen on the ground. So there was a ceremony for burning a lot, just a lot of respect for the nation. And all of that. And we were sitting there. And it was just—it a, a really nice, long but nice ceremony. And at one point, this Boy Scout got up and read a poem. And it was a very nice poem from the perspective of a flag. It was from the perspective of the flag. It was really neat. It was very creative. And I was sitting there listening to it. And then there was this one line. It was talking about all the things that people do with this flag. And at this one line, it says... I am worshipped. That's what the poem said. Folks, I am a patriot. I am so thankful and honored to live in the United States. I place my hand over my heart when we sing the national anthem. I recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And as much as I respect a flag, I will not worship it. I will not worship a flag. I will not worship a president. I will not worship this nation. I am an American. But I am sold out to Christ first. I am sold out to Christ first. Never let your allegiance to anything created circumvent your worship for the Creator. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In my biology class, that I'm teaching at Frankfurt High. It's a dual credit course, so it's college credit. We're in a subject matter right now talking about cellular biology. We're talking about cells. We're talking about all the organelles in the cell and, and about DNA and mitochondria and all those things that one day we'll have a lesson on that. We'll just have like a day-long lesson and I'll talk about cell biology. It's really exciting. But we're, we're teaching this, Right? And we talk about how all these things were created. We talk about the cell, which is the primary, like the, the, the smallest unit, the most, uh, the most uh, simple uh, component of life. And then one young man raised his hand from the back. And he said, but where did all that come from? Now, this isn't a, this isn't a Christian school. This is a public school. And we're talking about science. He said, yeah, but where did all that come from? And I said, personally, I believe the Lord said, let there be light. Nothing that we have seen, ever seen, or will see was not created by our God in heaven. And Scripture says that not only did God created it, create it, He created it through Christ. That Christ Holds all things together, everything by the word of his power. You have God the Father sitting on a throne saying, Let there be light with the spoken word, and through Christ, Christ creates and and he holds all things together. Just imagine that. Imagine just being a fly on a metaphorical wall because it wasn't there when God said, Let there be light. Folks, this past week, the world, or at least the United States, celebrated as civilians went up into space, went into SpaceX and went up into like the, the the upper atmosphere, right? They could kind of see the the curvature of the earth and they they saw it and they were up there. I don't know, were they up there 15 minutes? I have no idea. Three Oh, they were there three days. Okay. Oh, that was uh, that was uh, the Amazon dude that was up there fifteen minutes. Okay. So they 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 went up there and camped out for for three days. That would have been a little bit of a different camping experience. So they're up there three days looking at the curvature of the Earth, right? And they're and they're so excited. And folks, I give you, I give you this. That'd be cool. That would be cool. And all of a sudden it's time to come home, and their little parachute comes out, and they they follow this little capsule, splashes down, and everybody's cheering, and everybody's excited. I get that. It's awesome. I would cheer too. But folks, let me tell you, that does not compare to what God has done. They're right there in the upper atmosphere. And God has flicked things into existence that we've not even seen yet. We likely will never see. And, folks, He didn't even flick it, He just spoke it. I can't even get my dog to do what I want him to do. And here God is saying, Let there be light. We often talk in science, we think, we say that matter cannot be created or destroyed. It can just be converted into something else. And energy cannot be created or destroyed. And that's perfectly true. All the matter that we see now has existed from the beginning of time and will exist until the end of time. The same with energy. It cannot be created or destroyed by us. But God can and he has. And that is the God we worship. That is the God we celebrate. That is the God who is seated on a throne with four living creatures who can see all things, worshiping at his feet day and night. They could be used for a lot of things, but he created them to worship him. And these 24 elders, when they lead worship, they get on their knees and worship to our God is worthy of praise. Will you praise him? Will you praise him? Because what we're getting ready to see is the judgment of God coming down on the nations. Now, you might ask, why is he judging the nations? And we could go through a litany of reasons why these nations deserved to be judged we could go through all the atrocities. You yourselves could think right now, why do all these people deserve to be judged, are worthy of being judged and condemned by God? You're thinking of your coworker. You're thinking of all kinds of people who are worthy to be judged. They're going to get theirs. Got all their reasons for being judged. But it all boils down to this. They failed to worship. They failed to worship. Now you may say, no, it was because of sin. Yeah, I get that. It was because of sin. And the greatest sin is to fail to worship and give God His due. Because everything else was their idol. let us never be accused of failing to worship. And if this is our God, He makes it really easy. He makes it really easy for us to worship Him. So let's cast aside our earthly crowns, whatever that might be, Everything that we've earned for ourselves, everything that we've built up, all these things that we celebrate and that we revere and that we cling to with white knuckles, we don't want to let them go. Let's lay them down at the foot of the cross and worship the only one who is worthy. It is time for us to make a choice. You cannot serve two masters. And there is only one who was and is and who is to come. So let's worship him in splendor with majesty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we give you all the glory this morning. Father, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to not neglect our worship of you. Lord, we love you.